Hi, I'm Eric Chaffin, Senior Pastor of Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana. Welcome to The Upward Call, our weekly Beach Street message cast. If this is your first time to connect with us, we invite you to discover more at www.beachstreetfbc.org. Beachstreetfbc.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We pray that today's message will inspire and challenge you as God speaks to you through his word. Revelation. While you're turning there, I need to make a true confession. I have an odd habit. I often record televised football games to watch later. But sometimes what I do is rather than be surprised by the ending, I look up the score and then I decide, am I really gonna invest three hours of my life into this? Because if my team lost, no, the answer is no. Which is why I didn't watch a whole lot of University of Oklahoma football games last year because they really stunk. But uh, that, that's my thing. I kind of spoil the surprise sometimes. Now, some of you might be like that with your reading. You might be curious readers who, uh, who can't wait to know the ending of the book. So you skip over to the last paragraph find out what happened. If it's a thriller or a mystery, you want to know who done it, right? Or if it's a nonfiction book and the author is stating a particular uh, argument, you want to read his or her concluding thoughts. Well, for some people, not a lot, but for some people, actually knowing the end of the book, reading the end, actually enhances the experience for them. You know, for some people, they they want their fears about the characters in the story or about what's to come to be relieved. Well, today what we're going to do is we're going to study the vision that Jesus Christ gave to John. Um, the vision of Jesus, the one who can take away all of our fears and all of our doubts and give us victory in this life and in the next. Now, John's amazing vision, we know, became what we now refer to as the book of Revelation. The last book of the Bible presents a grand, glorious, victorious picture of Jesus Christ. And it shows us that history flows to that moment when, as Paul said in, in Philippians 2.11, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, Revelation shows us how mankind's story ends. And so we can live our lives in a much deeper and fuller way. We can live not with fear, but with confidence. Now, Revelation was written sometime in the late first century. Most scholars think around 95, 96 AD, at a time when the Roman emperor Domitian had exiled uh, the apostle John to the island of Patmos. And it was while there on Patmos that he received this revelation from the risen Jesus, who told John to write down the message and send it to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Now, in the process, Jesus also gave John visions of events at the end of the age, uh, Christ's uh, re return, his triumphant return, uh, the new heaven, the new earth, all of that stuff. Really, the big idea, though, behind Revelation chapter 1 is this, that Jesus Christ is the victorious Lord of all. In fact, that's really the theme of the entire book because we know that Jesus Christ will return 
to defeat evil, and to establish his victorious reign. So as we study these few verses in Revelation chapter 1, there's three pictures of Jesus that I want you to get this morning, all right? So picture number one, the glorious Christ. The glorious Christ. Look at verse 12. John, recording his vision, he says, Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe and with a golden sash wrapped around his waist. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze, as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. So as John worshipped, he was able to get a glimpse over the horizon of time and really catch a, a, a glimpse of the one who actually reigns over history. And what he saw was this astounding vision of Jesus Christ. Now, when we read this, we have to be very careful not to interpret these visions literally. You know, because it's made up of, of, of symbols. How do we know this? Well, John's use of the word like. He's, uh, he's using simile, which is a comparison using the words like or as. You'll find that sort of imagery, that sort of symbolism, all through the book of Revelation, much of which is actually borrowed from Old Testament prophecy. In fact, this description we just read bears a lot of similarity to Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7. In fact, a few verses earlier in, in verse 7, John directly quotes both Daniel and Zechariah. But what is it about this imagery what, what do these images communicate to us about the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, let's just go through them and break them down one by one. It says, he was standing among the lampstands. Basically, that's a symbol of the Lord's presence. It says, he was dressed in a robe with a golden sash. Those are the garments of a king, symbolizing the Lord's honor and his authority. His head, his hair like white wool, white as snow. That communicates his everlasting nature, his eternality, the wisdom of the ages. Eyes like a fiery flame. That means he sees everything. And since he sees everything, he is able to judge righteously. It says he has feet like bronze, fired in a furnace. That's a picture of someone who's unmovable. The voice like a sound of cascading waters. At the very least, that tells us he is speaking a powerful message. I mean, it's like standing next to the Niagara Falls. You know, that when Jesus speaks, his words are, are felt as much as they are heard. Just like the way a, the roar of a waterfall will actually vibrate the bones in your chest when you stand next to it. Says that he held seven stars in his hand. That tells us that he holds the church firmly, safely in his hands. We'll talk more about the imagery of the stars a little bit later. It says, out of his mouth a double-edged sword. That means he speaks with power. In fact, he is the living word of God. This is an image of, of Christ's judicial authority. 
His face was shining uh, like the sun in all of its brilliance. That's a picture of majesty and glory and, and holiness. In fact, that might have actually reminded John of seeing Jesus on what we now refer to as the Mount of Transfiguration, seeing Jesus in his glorified form. We'll also talk about that a little bit more later on. But how do these verses compare to our, our typical picture of Jesus? Because when we're reading the Gospels, you know, we, we kind of get this picture of, okay, he's a teacher, he's a healer, he's a kind, compassionate, uh, gentle man, but really that's not the whole picture of Jesus, is it? So what was then the purpose of this vision of Christ revealed to the Apostle John? I think more than anything, it was meant to be an encouragement, but it's a threefold encouragement. Okay, now first of all, it's an encouragement to John himself. John was facing tough times. He was in exile. But you see, Jesus' appearance to him and Jesus' words showed him that, hey, Jesus is still in charge. It was a reminder that Jesus saw John. He knew exactly what John was going through. His situation didn't catch uh, Jesus by surprise. It assured John of Christ's power and his authority to deal with whatever John was facing. And it assured John of, of Jesus' understanding of his situation, of the past, and of both a knowledge and control of the future as well. So it's an encouragement to John. It's also an encouragement to the seven churches. Now remember, those churches were the intended recipients of John's writing in Revelation. So the whole book needs to be read from the perspective of the original audience. So as you read it, ask yourself, how would these early Christians of Asia Minor, the ones addressed in Revelation chapter 1 through 3, how would they have understood this book? You know, for you and I to understand it all, we first need to understand something about their situation, know some things about them. You know, the first Christians lived in eager anticipation of Christ's return, but 60 years later, it still hadn't happened. Persecution was increasing. Some were beginning to doubt. And because of Roman control... The imperial cult, which that's the cult that worshiped the emperor as God, was a prominent feature in, in all of these cities of Asia Minor that are addressed here in Revelation. So much of the hostility against the churches of Asia Minor would have been due to their noncompliance with participation in this imperial cult. See, their faithfulness to Christ meant a refusal to worship the emperor. And a refusal to worship the emperor could in turn result in their deaths. And so this glorious depiction of Christ would have encouraged them tremendously. You see, John's description of Jesus here reminded the churches that this is no wimpy deity. This is the God the one who was, who is, who is to come. He has power and authority and wisdom. He is eternal. And he can be trusted. And he's the one that's in charge. Okay? Not these figures of human authority. So John's vision and the letters to the churches that followed in chapters 2 and 3, really the, the whole book was meant 
as an encouragement to these believers to stand firm, to remind them that the Lord is still in control. No matter how things might look, Christ, not the emperor, is the Lord of history. He has the key to destiny itself, and he is coming again to execute justice against evil. And because of that, there is a wonderful, glorious future for every faithful believer, especially for those who laid down their lives for Christ, which was happening some there in the first century. So as an encouragement to John, it was an encouragement to the seven churches, but you know what? It's also an encouragement to us in the church today. Why would these facts make a difference in why we can trust and be passionate about following Jesus? Well, it reminds us that, okay, like John, yeah, we got problems too, okay? Now, we haven't been, you know, exiled, literally physically exiled like he was, but do you know Christians in America today, we're often socially exiled, we're mocked, ridiculed, marginalized, excluded, but Jesus sees that. He knows. He knows our situation. He knows our past. And he knows that the future is also in his control. And while we might face problems, while we are all going to face death at some point, either through illness or age or possibly accident, that vision of Christ's presence assures us Jesus is there. He's there to carry us, to carry our families when we have to deal with life's difficulties, its tragedies. All right, so far we've seen a vision of the glorious Christ that served as an encouragement to John, to the seven churches, to the church today. But in these next couple of verses, we're going to find some encouraging words from the Savior himself as we see a picture of number two, the resurrected Christ. Look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Now, church, I want you to note the two titles that Jesus used to refer to himself here. It's very important. Jesus has two very important fundamental things about Jesus Christ. All right, here's the first one. Jesus is God. He's God. That term first and last, it, it really means the same thing as the title spoken earlier in verse 8. When he said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. See, Jesus being the, the beginning and the end of all things, that's a reference to no one other than the one true God. And this title actually stressed Christ's eternality. You see, only God is everlasting. So he used this title for himself again in Revelation chapter 2 when he was addressing the church at Smyrna. And also when he spoke about his return in Revelation chapter 22. So, if in your studies of Jesus through the Gospels or the New Testament epistles, if there's ever been any doubt in your mind that Jesus is God, 
Yeah, this ought to settle it right here. So it tells us Jesus is God. It also tells us that Jesus is alive. He referred to himself as the living one. Now, the New Testament teaches us that only God has immortal life in himself. Well, Jesus, as God the Son, he also has this life. We see that in John chapter 1, John 5, John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus' declaration here in Revelation 1 that I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever, really goes to the very heart of the gospel. I mean, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, our faith is a sham. It's worthless. Now, this isn't merely a reference to his past resurrection, but a statement of Christ's present position. That he is forever alive. And he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. So two of the most powerful, fundamental truths of Christianity. Jesus is God, and Jesus is alive. Folks, if that doesn't get your motor running, your salvation's check engine light might be on. This is good stuff. Fundamental. Christianity 101 type stuff. But I want you to notice John's response to Jesus. I mean, he's stricken. Being human like us, I mean, John could not comprehend the glorious vision before him. It says he fell at his feet like a dead man. Now, you know, we like to talk about being paralyzed by fear. And, and there really is such a thing as anxiety paralysis. But, you know, I imagine it takes something a little bit more than, more traumatic than seeing a, a spider or a mouse or a snake in the house to really make us that fearful. I mean, imagine being so awed, so stricken with holy fear that the only thing you can do is fall down. John saw a supernatural being and he was stricken with trembling and fear, just like the prophets Ezekiel and Daniel before him. Ezekiel chapter 1, Daniel chapter 8, Daniel 10. In fact, you see this multiple times through the scriptures. People being given a vision of the living God and then falling on their faces before him. And this wasn't the first time that John had experienced a sight like this. You recall Matthew chapter 17 on a, another occasion. He, along with Peter and James saw Jesus transformed into his glory right there in front of them. And their response at the time was actually very similar to John's response in Revelation 1. It says in Matthew 17, 6, they fell face down and were terrified. Church, when we're terrified, who picks us up? I love Jesus' response on both occasions. Matthew 17, 7 says Jesus touched them and said, Get up! Don't be afraid. Revelation 1, 17, John says that Jesus laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. All right, so what does this mean to us? Jesus' response to their fear. What does that mean to you and I? We'll get to that in a sec. Now, let's think about for a second what it meant to the seven churches. We've already touched on this briefly. Remember, they're the persecuted church. 
Roman authorities told the earliest Christians that Caesar was on the throne and that he reigned as God. To the Romans, you know, Jesus was just another dead prophet who would soon be forgotten. But now, John brought the message of Christ's resurrection and everything that it entailed. Jesus, whose power actually called the universe into being. I mean, John chapter 1, verse 3, Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. Jesus, whose authority will one day redeem this sinful, broken world. He is alive and he's exalted over all. That had to be reassuring to them. What does it mean to us today? What should it mean to us today that Christ, in all of his splendor and majesty, made the effort to calm John when he was frightened? Tells us he's a personal God. He's not some cold, detached observer that just kind of watches us from afar but never interacts. He's a personal God. It shows God's love for his people. Shows that he cares for those who trust him, those who would willingly submit to him. But in this passage, Jesus described himself as the living one. Here's God the Son, the one who died in our place, choosing to accept the punishment for our sin. Yet Jesus did not stay dead, church. God the Father put his seal of approval on what Jesus did by raising Jesus, God the Son, from the dead. Jesus is alive. And you should hear that more than just on Easter Sunday. Paul said in Romans chapter 14, verse 9, that Christ died and returned to life for this, that he might be Lord over both the dead and the living. Paul also said in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 through 21, that God exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church. Folks, that ought to calm us. It ought to reassure us. It ought to give us confidence because of what Christ has done for us, because he is with us. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid of what other people think about us. We don't even have to be afraid of what the world might do to us. And we certainly don't have to be afraid of death because Christ has already conquered death for us, his church. His death was for us. His resurrection was for us. He lives for us. Now, I want you to look at the end of verse 18. Jesus said, I hold the keys of death and Hades. What does all that mean? And why is it important to us? Well, the, the original Greek text here, the word Hades was actually used to refer to both the grave, but also the abode of the dead. Now, in Greek culture, you would think underworld. When Jesus said that he holds the keys of death and Hades, it tells us 
that he is master over life and death. It reminds us that the truth of Christ's gospel message is the key to eternal life. That Jesus holds the key to our freedom from the, the prison of separation from him. Tells us that we're not locked into a state of non-existence when we die. Reminds us that you know, physical death is simply the spirit being temporarily separated from the body until the resurrection and our reception of new glorified bodies that will be ours for all of eternity. Now, on the flip side of this truth, you know, Jesus holding the keys to death and to Hades, it also tells us that rejection of Christ's gospel denies a person the key to eternal life, that it results in eternal separation from God in a place of eternal torment. We refer to it as spiritual death. And that this spiritual death is really the consequence of our own willful choice to reject God with our disbelief. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 55, where death is your sting, where death is your victory. In reference to that very verse, the uh, reformer Martin Luther once wrote, this is so true that even Satan cannot deny it. Christ's resurrection and victory over sin, death, and hell is greater than all heaven and earth. You can never imagine his resurrection and victory so great, but then in actuality it is far, far greater all right, church, so, so far we've seen a vision of the glorious Christ. The next few verses, we found some encouraging words from the resurrected Christ who identified himself as both the first and the last and the living one. But now we come to verses 19 through 20, where we find a mystery explained and also a very encouraging promise for the church in this final picture of Christ. Number three, the victorious Christ. Look at verse 19. Therefore, write what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. All right, so let's explore some of this symbolic imagery that Jesus is using here. I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, there's a mystery to explain, uh, specifically regarding the seven lampstands, but, but Jesus really deciphers that part of it for us. The seven golden lampstands represent the seven churches to whom the, the letters in chapters two and three are addressed. And the image of the lampstand emphasizes Christ's his intimate knowledge and his sovereignty over the churches and Christ standing among them is really a symbol of the, of the risen Lord being present among his churches. Then let's talk about the seven stars for a sec. Jesus explained that the seven stars were the seven angels of the seven churches. Now the, the stars slash angels, it says we're in Jesus' right hand. Jesus' words here echo the description from earlier in verse 16, but the fact that they're in his right hand, that's significant because that's symbolic of Christ's 
honor and authority and power. Anytime you see a reference to the right hand, like Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father, that's a position of honor and authority. Now, as to what the, the, the term angels stands for, Bible scholars had offered, they've offered different uh, interpretations of this. Some think they were actually spirit beings, actual angels. Other interpreters think these angels were actually the personified spirits of the churches themselves. But most understand the angels to be the, the human leaders of the churches, the pastors or elders, because the term here in the Greek le uh, text, rather, uh, that's translated as angels, it's angelos. Now, angelos, depending on the exact context, it, it means messenger or envoy or one who is sent by God. So in verse 20, we find a mystery explained, but then I also want you to notice there is a victory to experience. Now, for those of us living life here on earth, you know, the imagery of victory, you know, maybe it's more like us high-fiving one another or a runner crossing the finish line first with his fist pumped up in the air or your various end zone touchdown celebrations, you know, like the Dirty Bird or the Icky Shuffle or the Pigeon Dance or maybe, you know, just a national championship team hoisting high the championship trophy. But the fact that the risen victorious, glorified Son of Man was among the churches, the lampstands, and that he holds the stars of these representative churches in his right hand, that emphasizes that the church is and can only be victorious because the Lord Jesus Christ has been and can only be victorious. He will always be victorious. He is the victorious one. He, the victor, holds the church, not both the universal church, but the local church in his hand. Folks, he holds Beach Street First Baptist Church in his hand. So how should that truth encourage us? It reminds us of his personal care. His personal touch reminds us he's watching over us. He's watching over churches, both large and small. It tells us that he desires to bless us, to nurture us, to encourage each and every one. Also tells us he's got a task for us. And that not only is his spirit within us, but his spirit is empowering us to carry out that task that he's given to us. See, church, John wrote the book of Revelation so that the church would know that Jesus reigns. So that we could all live in the confidence that Jesus has already won the victory over sin, over the corruption in this world. It reminds us that love triumphs over hate, that good will indeed triumph over evil. And most importantly, it tells us that Jesus is going to bring all of his children home to be with him. And that no power, nothing will ever be able to separate his love from us. Paul wrote to that uh, very thing in, in Romans 8, uh, verses 38 and 39. Nothing's going to separate us from his love. Now, sadly, 
You know, some of us, we live as if the battle is somehow still in doubt. You know, as if we, we think Jesus is going to win, but we're not entirely sure. And as a result, we're not fully committed to his kingdom. It doesn't have to be that way. Folks, we can be bold. We can be confident right now. Why? Because Jesus has won. His enemies are defeated. So we can live boldly for Christ. We don't have to let those who have already been defeated by Jesus intimidate us any longer. Jesus is our victor. And we can live every single day in joyful confidence of his victory. Which really brings us full circle to the big idea behind this passage that Jesus Christ is the victorious Lord of all. All right, so you're thinking, okay, that's, that's fine and good. Eric, how do I walk this out? How do I live it? Well, given the knowledge that Jesus Christ is the victorious one, how does that affect the way that we live? How do we put this truth to work in our lives. Four quick things, very quick things. Uh, four key words. Call them action steps, whatever you want to call them. First one is this trust. Examine your life for areas where you're, you're trying to retain control, but then relinquish control to Him. Trust Christ to lead you in those areas. Trust Him not just to be your Savior, but your Lord. Your boss, master. So we trust, we stand. Be bold and confident in those places where your faith in Christ is challenged or ridiculed. Choose to take a stand for his victory, whether that's at home, at work, at school, in your neighborhood. And the third one is encourage. If you've got friends who are discouraged because of their circumstances, Pray for them, be there for them, encourage them. Share what you've learned today with them, that Jesus is present in their circumstances, that he has authority over all of that, over all things. And then the fourth one, a very important one, witness. Since Jesus is victorious, we bear the responsibility to communicate the gospel truth, to obey the Great Commission, to go and teach all nations, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything, Jesus said, that I have commanded you. He said, remember, I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. That's Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Now, those of you who are Christ followers, you know how the story ends. You've already read to the end. Jesus wins. But here's the cool thing. You and I can be standing victorious with him. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 says that believers will one day reign with him. But you know, it's hard to celebrate victory if you're still mired in slavery to sin. But you know what? You can be free of that. You can be free of the penalty of sin. 
Jesus paid the penalty for your sins, for my sins, by dying on the cross. And he did it so that we might live victoriously, not just in this life, but in the next one. And all we have to do to live in that victory is to simply place our trust in him and in the victory that he has already won. Are you living in that victory today? Are you standing confidently knowing that Jesus has already won the battle? Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to have a personal relationship with God, it's pretty simple. It's repent, believe, and receive. We acknowledge that we're all sinners who fall short, and we repent. That word means to change your mind about the way you've been living. Then you choose to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you. And you receive, by faith, God's gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Beach Street. Small group Bible study begins at 9.30 on Sundays, followed by worship at 10.45. There's a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays at 6. You'll find us at the corner of 6th and Beach Street in downtown Texarkana. And for more info, visit our website at beachstreetfbc.org.